Welcome to Life Lessons with Dr. Steve Shell. For 20 years, Dr. Steve's 30-minute radio program, Life Lessons, was heard throughout the United States. Committed to comprehensively teaching through entire books of the Bible, Pastor Steve pulls out the deep, eternal truths in each section of Scripture without skipping over the challenging passages. He applies what is learned clearly and practically so that we're inspired not to just be hearers of the Word, but doers also. Father, would you open the word to us and our hearts to the word. We would be disciples fit for this age. We would not run away. We would not hide. We would not be afraid. But we would walk in the power of the name of Jesus Christ. Jesus, you are, have all authority. Every devil in hell, all the enemy bows its knee to you. You are the king. And you are with us always. You never leave us. And you have given us your name to use. You said, use my name. I'm yours. And Lord, we just thank you for empowering us as disciples to be victorious and powerful. We bless you for that. May the word come alive to us and our hearts to the word. May I hear it as well. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. All right, Acts 14. We'll start at verse 8. Paul and Barnabas are on their first missionary journey. They have gone from Cyprus right to the southern coast there of Turkey and gone straight 100 miles over the Taurus Mountains uh, to Pisidian Antioch. By the way, I just saw a picture of those Taurus Mountains there at the harbor of Perga. You know, I, I've told you about how rugged it was to make that 100-mile journey inward. It looks like the Himalayas. I, have, I, I, I thought, is, are the mountains as bad as I said they were? And I saw these, this picture, and they're just, they just come straight up like a wall, snow-capped wall. And he and Paul and Barnabas went through those mountains to Pisidian Antioch, and then they were thrown out of town, remember that? And then they head to Iconium, and, 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 and Luke has this just ominous word. He said, there began a rush. Um, a mob began to sweep across the city toward them. And they were, going to, they were going to humiliate them. I don't even want to know what they were going to do. And then they were going to kill them. And Paul and Barnabas heard the rush come across the city and they fled. And they, they fled to Lystra. And you're going to see this is not a very safe harbor. They're going to go to Lystra and, and there's going to be quite a situation there. So here we are. Verse 8, Acts chapter 14. All right. At Lystra, a man was sitting who had no strength in his feet, lame from his mother's womb, who had never walked. Does that sound familiar? Peter and, James, Peter and John did the same thing in the, in the temple. This man was listening to Paul as he spoke, who, when he had fixed his gaze on him and had seen that he had faith to be made well, said with a loud voice, stand upright on your feet. And he leaped up and began to walk. The crowds saw, when they saw what Paul had done, they raised their voice saying in the Lyconian language. So Paul and Barnabas don't understand what's being said. It's, it's, it's a completely foreign dialect. The gods have come, become like men and have come down to us. And they began calling Barnabas Zeus, which tells you a little bit of what Barnabas looked like. Nice hair, uh, big beard. He's, he's older. Uh, and, and Paul, Hermes. Because he was the chief speaker. The priest of Zeus, whose temple was just outside the city, brought oxen and garlands to the gates and wanted to offer sacrifice with the crowds. But when the, the apostles Barnabas and Paul heard of it, they tore their robes and rushed out into the crowd, crying out and saying, Men, why are you doing these things? We are also men of the same nature as you and preach the gospel to you that you should turn from these vain things to a living God who made the heavens and the earth and the sea and all that's in them. In generations gone by, he permitted all nations to go their own ways. And yet he did not leave himself without witness in that he did good and gave you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with, good, with food and gladness. Even saying these things with difficulty, they restrained the crowds from offering sacrifice to them. But Jews came from Antioch and Iconium. Having won over the crowds, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing him to be dead. But while the disciples stood around him, he got up and entered the city. The next day he went away with Barnabas to Derbe. Paul and Barnabas have come 150 miles. They've walked 150 miles from Pisidian Antioch to, to Lystra. Lystra is 
one of 13 military outposts for the Romans that, that, that guard Galatia, the whole Galatian region. All of these, by the way, are the Galatian churches. When you have your book of Galatians, these are the letters Paul wrote to these guys. Derby, Iconium, Lystra, Pisidian Antioch. These are the churches he's writing to. All right, so he's come 150 miles to this remote uh, military outpost of maybe, at the most, 2,000 people. The tell is still there. When I say tell, that's a... Cities were built one upon the other, and they'd level it, and then they'd keep building up. And, and now you find around the, the countryside of, over these regions these, these humps, these big old bumps in the ground. And it's where the city was. It's a tell. And that tell is about four and a half, five acres on top. It's still there. They haven't excavated. It's just a big mound right there. But we know where this is. And it's, it's just out in the middle of nothing to this day. I mean, you, you just walk and walk. And it's, it is kind of beautiful grasslands and oak trees and, and just kind of grazing, grazing land. And then there's some farms in the, in the bottom land around, around where Lystra is. But it's, it's, it's way out there. Paul and Barnabas have walked this whole way. And they come to the city. And, and you, heard this, you heard what happened. They, they hold a meeting right off, and it's out by the front of the city gates. It's in the Greek language. You know where it is. So they're out there by the gates. Great crowd gathers. I mean, this is, this is, I mean, you don't have TV or anything else there. I mean, when something's going on, everybody's there. So there's a crowd, and Paul's preaching. You heard what happened. There's a man there who is born crippled. Uh, so everybody in town knows him. You've you got to remember this. When you and I make me go through a healing service and somebody stands up and says, I'm healed. You think, is that a plant or do they really healed and all of this stuff? Not, not in Lystra. They all know the guy. They've watched him since he was a child. There's no, this was fraud. So when, when this man suddenly stands to his feet and begins to jump and walk around, okay, everybody is shocked. Whoa, this is something. What you need to know also is there's a, there is a myth, a legend, that was pre prevalent in that area. And the, the legend was this, that the two gods, Zeus and Hermes, had come down in previous generation and had gone door to door through the neighborhoods of every place, knocking on doors, asking to be given hospitality. And nobody would. They all sent them away. said, get out of here. We don't need your kind around here. Go on, get out, and push them out. The last house they came to was this elderly couple named uh, Philemon and Bacchus. And Philemon and Bacchus, instead of pushing them out, they welcomed them in. They gave them the best wheat and flour and eggs and made food for them and cared for them. And after the, all of this hospitality, uh, Zeus and Hermes walked outside the house with them. And they, they said, we're going to tell you what we're going to do. Because this community has been so uh, rude to us and so inhospitable, uh, we're going to destroy the entire community. But because you have shown us hospitality, we will give you one wish. What would you like? Well, the wish, they said, well, the only thing we wish is that we would die together. They lived a long life. And then one day, uh, Bacchus looked at Philemon and Philemon at Bacchus. And they began to grow leaves and, things, and branches out of their hands and arms. They turned into two linden trees. And these linden trees are there to this day. These, these kinds of linden trees grow in that area. All right, that's the myth. Now picture this now. Here come two men. One looks like Zeus. One talks a lot. And, and these two men come in, and this man they've all known all their lives and all his life stands up and is running around totally well. Okay, here we go. Zeus and Hermes have come again. We're not going to blow it this time. We are going to be so hospitable. So the, the priest of Zeus, he brings, he brings these bulls, and they're covered with leaves and flowers or wool. They decorate these things before they sacrifice them. So here come the animals all ready for, for sacrifice, covered with these things. And they're going about to slit the thing's throat, you know, and do the whole business. You've got two Jews, a Levite and a Pharisee of Pharisees. And they're about to worship them by sacrificing bulls. Can you imagine the visceral reaction? These two, and they, they grab the hem of their outer robe by the neck. This is, this is an ancient Hebrew thing. And they rip it. And they just rip their robe like that from top to bottom, which means is, is the ultimate side of grief. They are horrified. Don't do this. And then they rush out into the crowd going, men, we're, we're men like you. 
we, fellow sufferers is actually the word they use. We're fellow sufferers with you. We've come to teach, teach turn you to the one true living God who gave you all of this, the fruitful seasons. In the middle of this, no kidding, it's in the language. In the middle of this chaos, this group of Jews, Jewish leaders from Pisidian Antioch and Iconium show up in the middle of the mess. How far did I say it was? 150 miles. Would you walk 150 miles to get somebody? How angry do you have to be? How much do you have to hate them? Isn't it about 150 miles to Portland? Okay. Some of you have thought you, you rode your bicycles to there. You would walk, how many hate somebody enough that you would walk 150 miles to try to kill them? Okay. Well, they, they did. And it's as far then, and their bones hurt as much as yours do. And so they walked 150 miles to get this guy. They show up in the middle of it. Now, I'm thinking to myself, what can you say to a crowd like this after they've just had a miracle like this in front of them? Well, you can't say it didn't happen. So the only option I can see is that they had to convince them this is bad magic. These men are, these men are, are witches. These men have, have come and they've done bad magic. Uh, you don't want this, you know, and, and they've somehow turned them. So the crowd chills. They, they, they begin to go, oh, and back away. And then it says they stoned Paul. Well, Greeks didn't stone people. That's Jewish execution. So it's the leaders from Antioch and Iconium that they allow to stone Paul. Notice Barnabas isn't even in the picture. Barnabas, he, I don't know, something about Paul. And uh, <laughs> he did. He just made him mad. And so... Here's what they did. I'm, I won't be overly gory, but I'm going to sure give you the details. Um, this is how a stoning was conducted. You need to get this because when it just, Luke just gives this little verse and says, stoned him, and he got up, and you think, okay, okay. All right, let, you have to understand what happened to him. They would tie his hands behind his back and his feet. They would, he would be on a precipice at least 15 to 18 feet high above a pavement or some kind of stone. They would give him an opportunity to repent. If he repented, they're still going to kill him. But if he repented, his sins would be forgiven. If he didn't repent, he would die in his sins. So they give him an opportunity to repent. You knew he didn't do that. And so then the two of his accusers will push him off. And they'll push him and he will fall the 15 to 18 feet uh, to the pavement. That usually kills the person, that, that fall. That's like going from the, I would, isn't about the third floor of a house. I mean, if you're going to get a full 18 feet in there, I would think about the level of a third floor floor is, is where I think. You, so imagine that you've been had your hands tied and you're pushed off at the third floor to the pavement. So he hits the pavement and then the accusers, everyone gets one stone. If you miss, that's to your problem, but you get one stone. So you take your one stone and here you are 18 feet up and you get to throw it down on him 18 feet below. Now, I don't think they missed too much. Um, so every accuser, if there's 10 accusers, if there's 100 accusers, everybody gets a stone, and they get to throw it down on Paul's body. They then go down, and they take his body. Now, how many of you think they knew people had pulses in those days? I, I think they did. I don't think pulse was a new idea. Uh, I think you probably knew that that went bump, 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 and, you know, or whatever. And... Uh, they, they thought he was dead. And so they drag his body outside of town. They don't bury it. They dump it. They may have actually taken it to the dump. But somewhere they've taken it out and they leave it for the dogs and the wild beasts to eat. This is the ultimate indignity. I mean, this is hatred at its very finest. You, they, they are going to have him destroyed by dogs in his body. That's how much they hate the man. So they leave him out there. And then it says the disciples came out. So there are some. There's some people that have believed here. They come out and cluster around. Barnabas would have led them. They, they, all Luke says is they made a circle around him. It doesn't say what they did, but you know they prayed. So they get around this crumpled, bleeding, torn body uh, of Paul. And they pray for him. And he gets up and goes back into the city. I mean, you have to understand this man's spirit and who he is. I think he died. I don't know how you didn't. Uh, 
however you want to look at this, the next day he walked 60 miles. That is a miracle of miracles. He was restored amazingly. So this, this is the horror that he went through. Later on, when he, he will write to the Galatians, he will say to them, I was with you in a bodily illness. I was with you in suffering and weakness. Boy, was he ever. And, and, he says, and he says at the end of his letter, they're hassling him. You know, these people are coming through uh, and convincing his disciples to uh, become uh, practicing Jews uh, with circumcision and all. And, and he says to them, he says, those are harassing me. He says, leave me alone. I bear in my body the scars of Jesus. In other words, the rest of his life, the man is scarred. The man is damaged. I think he, he, he suffered a debilitating illness. In, in that very letter, he'll say, uh, you would have taken your eyes out for me. I don't know if it, they must have hit his face. I don't know what they did to him. Um, but he says, notice what large letters I write with. That's, that's a man who can't see. Uh, and, and, and he's written, he writes the very end of it in his own hand. So they know it's him. What a price for a little town of 2,000 at the most and a few disciples. Is it worth it? Is it worth it? What, it, what all went on? Let's look at our, our text. Paul didn't go looking for trouble, but he did expect it. He realized a price had to be paid in order to rescue people for God. And he had decided to pay that price, whatever it might be. But the price he paid for preaching in a small Roman military outpost called Lystra turned out to be enormous. He walked over 150 miles from Pisidian Antioch to get to that remote city of about 2,000. It initially, a stunning miracle, moved the people to try to worship him. But in the midst of that chaos, the crowd suddenly turned against him and watched as he was executed by stoning. Thankfully, God raised him up and restored him so it was possible for him to continue his ministry. But he went through the rest of his life severely scarred by that terrible attack. And apparently it left him injured in some debilitating way. All for a few disciples. Was it worth it? Well, yes, of course, every soul is of infinite worth to God. But couldn't that same number of souls be one somewhere else with much less suffering? And why did God bring Paul to that same mean city four times? God alone knows his reasons, but I think one of those reasons was a little boy named Timothy. I've told you the story. What a, what a terrible price Paul paid to reach that city. God considered Lystra worth the price. He led Paul there in the first place and then brought him back three more times. Can't you imagine Paul walking that? Those are just little trails that go through there. There's no, no major. Walking those trails to get to this remote outpost going, why do I come here? Why do I come to this place? There was a reason. There was a reason. What caused him to focus such attention on this remote outpost in the middle of nowhere? I believe it's because... Someone who lived there would become a fruitful disciple. Would you say fruitful disciple? Yeah, we're going to make a distinction today. God's kingdom doesn't grow the way we might think. We tend to count numbers to determine what is and is not successful. But God counts disciples. What does he count? Yeah, he's looking for disciples. That's what grows the kingdom. Men and women, boys and girls who become like Jesus Christ. And these don't come in great numbers. There's a profound difference between someone who simply believes in Jesus Christ and a true disciple. Yes, theoretically, everyone who surrenders to God, trusts Jesus for the gift of righteousness, and receives the baptism of the Holy Spirit becomes a disciple. But in practice, that doesn't always happen. Some do and some don't. Some you can, can't stop and some you can't start. And the obvious question is why? What causes the difference? Jesus gives us part of the answer in the parable of the sower, Matthew 13. I remind you of it. 
It says a, a sower goes out. So you've got a picture of a farmer. He's got a bag of seed on his hip. He's doing this all by hand. He reaches in, grabs the seed, and spreads it. Remember this? Just throws it. And notice he's very, very sloppy. He throws seed on the road. He throws seed in the rocks. He throws seed in the weeds. He throws seed on the good soil. He's throwing seed all over the place, just, just indiscriminately throwing. That's, that's, that's an important point. Because the soils, in this case, are hidden. They're the heart. You can't tell by looking. You can't. It, so you, the principle is there. You preach the gospel. You preach the word of God to all kinds of people. And they will decide the kind of soil they are. So you're spreading the seed. Remember what the, the heart, you've got the seed on the hard soil. That's where the feet have packed it down and it won't penetrate. Never does take. The birds come and eat it. You've got seed in the rocks and it's warm. And so they sprout up quickly. So they actually take. So here you have somebody who believes, somebody who responds and says yes, grows up fast. And then it says when, when the sun comes, when persecution and hardship, affliction for their faith comes, they, they die out. They don't want it. Then it falls among the weeds. And weeds are competing for, for the moisture and for the, for the nutrition and for the light. They're competing for all these resources. In other words, the cares of the world, we, our heart, our energy, our time gets taken with the world. And we don't have any time left for God. All we're doing is spending our energies pursuing the things of the world. And then he says it will fall on good soil. But he makes an interesting distinction there. When it falls on good soil, he says, some bringing forth a hundredfold. Some 60 and some 30. Isn't that interesting? Why? What's the difference? Let's go back to our text. So this parable leaves us still asking a question. Why do some bring forth a hundredfold, some 60 and some 30? Is it a matter of gifting or the responsiveness of the culture in which they live? Or does it have to do with attitudes and decisions within that person? In other words, is it external circumstances or do we determine the fruitfulness of our lives? Of course, it's God working through us. We can do nothing apart from him. But does he limit us or do we limit him? Who decides whether I'm a hundredfold or thirtyfold, him or me? What do you think it is? A lot of people would say it's, it's, it's him. It's, it's a predestined kind of thing, and you do what you do, and he gives us summer one and summer two talents and all of that. Who, who decides how fruitful I will be? I, I want to suggest to you, I believe it's, it's us. Embracing the call. We are all called to be disciples. Do you agree? Yeah, there's, there's, no, there's no secondary calls. There's no, some people become, you know, sort of Marines and other people are, just sit on the sidelines and, and some people have a lousy assignment and you've got to do hard stuff for Jesus, but the rest of us, we watch TV and, and go to church, you know. Uh, that's not the way it is. There's only one call. We're all called to be disciples of Jesus Christ. There is an element, however, that only... But not all embrace the call. There's an element that only we can bring to this process. And that element determines our fruitfulness for God. It's not outward appearance. Thank heavens. It's not intelligence or talent. Thank heavens. It's not being in the right place at the right time. Some people think oh, it's just good luck. You ended up in a, in a hot spot. That kind of thing. I believe it's simply desire. Some people want to be fruitful and therefore, they do whatever it takes. They set their eyes on the goal and they start moving toward it. It's a desire that arises out of deep attitudes of the heart. Within every fruitful disciple there is, first of all, I think a strong love for Jesus. I, there's no other way to say this. You, you do what you do, bottom line, because you love him. You just Love him. It's not about guilt. It's not about earning stuff. It's not thinking you're getting your, your hide to heaven. It's not that. You fall in love with him. Years ago, the Lord gave me a mental picture. It's not a vision. I wouldn't claim that. I've had one vision. And that was years ago. And I, all I saw was the, the, the forehead and the eyes and the bridge of his nose. I, I did see him one time. Uh, uh, and saw his eyes and the whole thing. 
But this wasn't that, but I have a mental picture and it keeps coming back to me. And every so often it'll come when I'm worshiping and I see this and I know where it is. It's in Israel and it's, it's, it's on, the, on, the, on, the, on the west side of the Sea of Galilee there. The mountains are there and you've got this high area and I'm, I'm, I'm standing there, but in front of me, maybe six feet away, maybe eight feet away is Jesus. And I got, uh, forgive me if this is my vision, uh, my, my picture, but he, he isn't in a white robe. Uh, he, he didn't look like that at all. In fact, it's kind of Eddie Bauer. He, 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 he looks good. Um, he, he's got this beautiful kind of greeny brown, uh, rough uh, kind of thing. And then with sleeves, and he's got this beautiful whitish uh, shirt underneath, you know. Um, he, he's, I know people say he wasn't handsome, but he is in, in, in my picture. And uh, uh, he's, 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 he's lovely. And, and he's young, early 30s, strong, healthy. Um, and he, he's standing, the wind's kind of blowing, and, and we're in there, and the grass is moving around. And, and he's, he's turned part way, and he looks back at me, and he, there's just a smile. He's full of joy. He's not a bit worried, by the way. He isn't worried. <laughs> he's just not. And, and, he, and he looks at me, and he looks back at me, and, he just looked with his, and his eyes sparkle. They say it all, but he just says, let's run, let's run. And I'm thinking, um, okay. Here I, you, know, you know the feel? How many of you are looking for the off ramp, you know? You're looking for the exit. You just, you know, can we get time out here? Uh, I'd like to sit down. I'd like to rest. Isn't there some time you get those feelings? And the Lord looks at me. He says, come on, run. And he's not driving me. I do it and I do. I follow. Here I come. Because I love him. Bottom line, that's what it's all about for me. All the rest of this you can just put aside. I love him. I really believe in him and I love him. And if that makes him happy, this is what he wants. He wants souls. Then souls it'll be till I drop face down. We'll just do this. Secondly, a perspective on life. I think every disciple has finally seen it. I get it that life is short and God and people are the only things that matter. You've heard people say that he who dies with the most toys wins. He who dies with the most toys is an idiot. I mean, if that's what you put your life into, you have a car and junk while, they're, while you're breathing your last, it is absurd. You can't possibly be that dumb. There's, you've got to have some philosophical note in there somewhere Amen. that you look at life and see its perspective. We, this is about preparing for eternity. People are the only thing that lasts. God is calling us into eternal work. A commitment to fulfill my calling. God has asked me to do certain things, and I must obey. You have a feeling that the Lord has spoken to you. You know what you're supposed to do. Do it. There's this sense of, I have to obey him. I've been commanded. There's an abandonment of my rights. I will not set boundaries on how God can use me. I will give up my comfort, safety, financial security, and even health. When they stand in the way of obeying God. Paul calls himself a bondservant, a slave of Messiah Jesus. When, I, when we were over there, you know, I was feeling sorry for myself. This, I, don't, I don't like to travel much. And the, and the flight home from South Africa was 30 hours. I'm telling you, it was surreal by the end of it. You know, you're just... And I'm feeling sorry for myself. And I was standing there talking to some of the brothers who were heading back to, I think it was Zaire. And I'm, I'm saying, yeah, I got a 30-hour flight. And I said, how, how, long is your, how long is your bus ride? And the guy said, 65 hours. <laughs> would you, would I, get on a bus for 65 hours one way? One way uh, to come to this conference. Oh, my goodness. Jesus will may ask you to do things that are very uncomfortable, very painful. They can jeopardize your health. He doesn't mind spending us. 
You've heard it, people say, leave it all on the field. He'll spend you. He'll spend you till there's nothing left. And you know, as you go through this thing of this discipleship and you begin to give up things and follow Christ, you realize, whoa, it's not a game. It's not just talk. I really did give up all that. Oh, Lord, if you're not there, I'm toast. Anyone feel that? Yeah, this, this, is, this is for real. This is for real. You're being called to real sacrifice and he does spend his people. That's the message here in Lystra. Look what he was willing to have happen to his beloved Paul. Look what he, he knew this was going to happen. He led him there. What on earth could make that worth it? We have to covet spiritual fruit. There's, there's, there's literally a coveting, I think, a, a desire. There's a passion for it. I want spiritual fruit. I desire to maximize my potential. Uh, say this prayer with me out loud. Lord, I know I have limitations, but I want to be as fruitful as I am capable of being. Say it again. Lord, I know I have limitations, but I want to be as fruitful as I am capable of being. That'll get you in trouble. That, that means you're going to minister a lot longer than you want to. No retirement in this deal. That means, that means you're going to give beyond what you felt comfortable to give. That means you're going to do things you don't want to do. Do you understand? That's how fruit comes. That's how fruit comes. That's why I'm saying it's desire. It's desire. You can't just go through your Christian life with sort of a serendipity kind of thing. Like if something happens to minister, I'll do it. You know, in between football games, I'll do something. Heaven forbid he may ask you to minister during a football game. Whoa. Now, I do have the DVR on. So, man, let, me, let me just say, there's ways around this. I got to move to number six here. I'm, I'm, I'm being too honest. Okay. A confidence that I can do this. Look at that. A confidence that I can do this because of grace and the indwelling Holy Spirit. My life will change the eternal destiny of others. You will change the eternal destiny of others. God will work in and through me. Undergirding all of this is God's faithful care of us. Guiding, healing, comforting, teaching, encouraging, forgiving, and convicting. Just as a father cares for a child in whom he delights. But we must provide the desire. How God measures faithfulness. There is an old saying that goes something like this. It's easy to count the seeds in an apple, but only God can count the apples in a seed. That's because the reproductive power of a seed continues on long past a human lifetime. Seeds grow into trees, and trees grow apples that are full of seeds. Generation after generation after generation. And the same thing happens with a disciple. One real disciple produces fruit for God that no one can number because the impact of that life goes on long past the person's death. You, you, I want you to, I'm going I'm to develop this a minute. You've got to see something that the people you touch, impact of your life cannot be measured within your own lifetime. You can't say at the end, well, I guess I've only touched this many people. Or I've only affected this. Or well, did, did I waste my life here doing this? You know, I only got that. You cannot measure the fruitfulness of your life that way. I, I'm going to prove it. People they bring to Christ, bring others to Christ, who bring others to Christ, generation after generation after generation. God watches the, 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 the line, the shadow that emerges from your life. You touch this person, you touch this person. Think of Ananias there in, 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 in Damascus. Uh, he was a, undoubtedly did a lot of ministry, but only one we know is he brought the apostle Paul. Got him baptized in the Holy Spirit, prayed for his healing, uh, got him baptized, uh, he has one good disciple. The shadow from that man's life is enormous. It's enormous. Abraham is a wonderful example of this. God promised to make him into a great nation. He said he would have so many children he couldn't count them. But when he died, Abraham left a total of eight children. Only one of whom was the child God gave him to fulfill this promise. One son is hardly 
an innumerable nation. But the promise didn't stop working when Abraham and Sarah died. Isaac was the seed. God planted, which has kept on reproducing even to this day. We who have faith like Abraham are children of Abraham. And the number of his children keeps on growing. You see it? How many, how many, how many children of promise in his life did he leave? One, Isaac. God said, I'm going to make you a nation so great from you, it'll be like the stars of the sky. You can't count them all. Is it true? But it didn't end. At his death, there was one. At his death, there was one. But the promise keeps on going. When you bring a disciple, when you bring someone to Christ and they become a disciple, that, that seed, that apple seed just keeps on bearing apples. It just goes from generation to generation. We will never know until we get to heaven if then the full impact of our lives. We'll, if, if the Lord chooses to tell us You'll see the impact, the, sh- the enormous stream, as it were, that went out from the people that you and I touch. Jesus promised we would be fruitful as well. You see, you have a promise too, like Abraham's. Listen to this one. My father is glorified by this, that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you would go and bear fruit and that your fruit would remain generation after generation that the seed in you is full of life as it was in Abraham. He passed on faith. So we pass on life of Jesus Christ through us toward the end of his ministry. Jesus tended to run away from the crowds at times, even healed secretly. So a crowd couldn't gather. He spent more and more of his time teaching and ministering to those with a disciple's heart. Apparently there were about 500 of them. Men and women. And it is because of these, not the multitudes that numbered in the tens of thousands, that the kingdom of God continued to grow after he ascended. Do you understand that? The multitudes disappeared like the fog. They came for the loaves and fish. They came for the healings. They came to watch the deliverances. The crowds came and then the crowds just disappeared. The crowds did nothing to further the kingdom of God. It was 500 men and women who became profound disciples of him. And those were the seeds that carried the church into the next generation. There's seeds. There's true disciples. Which brings us back to Timothy. Finding Timothy. Timothy was probably a teenager when Paul first came to Lystra. His mother was Jewish. But his father was a Greek, so he was what the Jewish community called a mumser, the child of a forbidden marriage. That made him an outcast from the synagogue. He would never be welcomed there, neither would his descendants to the 10th generation. He is an outcast. His grandmother and mother, who were both Jewish, taught him the Bible from the time he was a boy. From a baby. It's literally the word Paul uses. A baby. And he may well have been in the crowd when Paul was attacked. He and his grandmother and mother all became believers while Paul was there or soon afterwards on that first journey. It was during Paul's third visit to Lystra that he invited Timothy to be his disciple. Here was the great rabbi Shaul trained under Gamaliel, one of the greatest rabbis in history, arguably the greatest Inviting this young outcast, this mumser, to be his disciple. Can you see, the, can you see the, what's going on there? Here's this boy. The, the father is not in the picture, apparently. I don't know what happened, but grandma, was, what's her, is she Lois or Eunice? The, these two women have raised this boy. He's, he's half Greek, half Jewish. Of course, they're raising him in the word. This, the synagogue will not teach him. He's not welcome in the synagogue school. He's not welcome in any part of that. But they put the word in their, in their son. Is this a modern family or what? Look at this. And here's this mumser. And here comes Rabbi Shaul. One of the, fine, one of the great, great trained minds of his generation. And it's on his third visit. And he, 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 says, he says to 
to, uh, to young Timothy, I want you to be my disciple. You come with me. I will, I will teach you. I'll mentor you. I'm your rabbi. You're to follow me. And here's this outcast. This boy would never would have been welcomed anywhere. He is now going to be trained by the best. He's now going to be trained by the best. How did he do? How did, how did this... See, see, disciples, you can't tell them by their out, outer covering. You can't tell them by their circumstances. You can't tell them whether they're young or old, male or female. You can't, look, you can't tell them by they're rich or poor. You can't tell them by what they look like. You can't tell a disciple. Only God knows the heart. It's the heart. There's a desire. There's, a, there's those things I've said in the, in the heart of that person. And here's this little young man. He's, I call him a young man. He's a young teenager. Here's this, this boy. And he's got that heart. And Paul calls him. During the third visit to Lystra that he invited Timothy to be his disciple. Here was the great rabbi. Trained out of Gamaliel. Inviting this young outcast to follow him. He saw in him the heart of a disciple. He saw in him the desire to be fruitful, and he did become fruitful. He went on to pastor one of the, probably the largest church in the world, and he became a loyal friend to Paul, a spiritual son. When Paul was awaiting execution in Rome, Timothy was one of the few who came to be with him. In other words, a precious treasure was hidden in Lystra, one that only God could see. When he first sent Paul there, someone worth much more than the price Paul paid. What will he put you through? Where will he, have, has he, has he put you in a difficult job? Has he put you in a troubled neighborhood? Are you in a, 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 a miserable environment somewhere? Has he asked you to do things that are enormously costly? And you think to yourself, what am I doing this for? I don't have any fruit. Nothing's happening. Just a few things here and there. What is this about? You don't know. You don't know who's hidden there. You don't know who was watching this. When we were in South Africa, Mary and I were sitting at, at a table having, having lunch. Well, I guess it was Sunday, wasn't it? It was a Sunday lunch after, after service. And... Uh, we were having lunch with, with uh, two people, really we were with, with the wife of a of, of, uh, young couple. Uh, I, I say young, he's 35. I don't know what she is, I didn't ask. Good, I have some sense. And, uh, but this young couple uh, are interns. We've been, you, you've been supporting them this last two years. We have several in, in, in South Africa. And... Uh, we're talking with them about their future plans. And uh, this is Amanda, and her husband is Lusandisu. I, I should have brought pictures. I've got some. Uh, and they're talking about what's, what are the dreams in their hearts. They've been through this internship. They've been being trained, all of that. Um, and you need to know that Amanda... Uh, was a graduate of our, our school in Willowvale. Do you remember that years ago we would go and help build a, 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 a children's school in the Transkei? Remember all of this? It started in 95, I think. We just had the first trip we went somewhere like that. Um, and we went out back in 19, 1995. Those of you who were on that team, we went out to a little village um, outside of Willowvale uh, called Indibella. And Indibella is... There's no roads there. I mean, you just kind of roll over the, the countryside to get there. There's no power, electrical power. There's no running water. Uh, and, and the church had fallen down. And, and we rebuilt a church building, put up a big yellow and white tent, and had a medical clinic going during the day. People would come streaming through. And then in the evening, we had a, little, had a generator, and, and we would have service. And uh, we would have that tent packed. Uh, somebody said 600 people. I didn't count. But I'm going to tell you, by the way, you haven't lived till you have been in, 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 in uh, at least I know South Africa, and I'm sure it's true all over Africa. But in Africa, they can actually keep a pitch. No offense. But you and I have quite the challenge to keep a pitch in the United States. Most of us have a trouble turning on the radio. You know, but they, they sing from childhood up in three and four part harmony, and they are sophisticated. 
It is very good. And there you stand just shoulder to shoulder in this, in this thing. And everyone's singing on pitch, hundreds of them, in worshiping the Lord in, in, in multiple harmonies. It just goes through your bones. It is an, I'm serious. It's an experience I will never forget all of my life. Uh, my son and I, he, he was with us on this, on the, with me on this trip. Um, and, and, and we will still, he can still hit the harmonies and the syncopation. I can't. But I, I, I kind of plod along on things and he'll sing it. And we'll, we'll go back and, in our hearts to Indabella. All of that got ruined, it appeared. Um, there had been, a, there was a trouble in the Foursquare Church in South Africa, and I won't go through that. But we, it appeared we'd lost, the, we'd lost the church building. It appeared that, that this, and the school was shut down. And all of this, it was dead. And it was so sad. And I had given it up for dead. I, I just thought, well, I guess, you know, you, you, you sow some seed and some of it just falls on the wrong ground. And I guess that's it, huh? And there we're sitting, and out, out, out of the blue, I'm, I'm talking to Amanda. And I said, so what are, your, what are your dreams? What are your plans? And she said, well, Lucindisu and I want to go back to Indibella and plant a church. I said, you want to go back to Indibella and plant a church? And that's the last thing I could say for about four minutes. Something that was totally dead. Suddenly, who knew? Lucindisu is from Indibella. Lucindisu was one of the boys playing around while we were working. One of the, you know, there, they don't, they, those young guys, they, make, they, make, they take wire and they make these gorgeous cars and stuff that, I mean, the wheels turn everything out of just, Things they find, they're so creative. They'll take, a, they don't have soccer balls and all. They take, they take what we call our, our grocery bags and they put them into a ball and they'll play, play soccer with that. So some, one, of, some, one of the boys, I certainly, I don't, there were all kinds of children around. One of the boys that was watching all of this was there, was Lucindisu. He's now the handsomest father and they, they've got a beautiful little boy called uh, Isevile means he God hurt, hurt us they hadn't been able to have a child and God gave them Isevile beautiful little guy just full of energy uh, climbing all over everything so here's this couple here's she she I think he also did he also go to Willowvale to the school as a teaching assistant, but she went all the way through. So here's our school. It looks dead. But here's one of ours rising up. And, and, and I'm telling you, there's an anointing on that woman. Um, we, we have not seen the end of what will happen with her. I'm serious. We have not seen the end of this. And him. The whole region loved them. They are welcomed by all the elders. They were wanted there. In fact, everyone's saying, please come. Please come and pastor us. Please come. They will pastor the region. Who knew? Who knew that the kid kicking the soccer ball over here, did you, while we're doing other things, we're not even paying attention to him. Who knew that he would rise up and be an elder for the region? God did. That was a dangerous trip. We almost took it on some things. There we, we built in that church. One of the things, the, I remember the trust got, fell free. And I, was on, I wasn't even paying it. And the thing swung down. And I was not far. The point just missed me. I could have been killed. I, a late, another trip, I fell through the roof in, in, in Willowvale. And broke my ankle. And only by the grace of God, and because I knew I was disobeying, did I hang on to a gutter and went straight down or I had to kill myself. What price will God put us through for his for disciples? for seeds, for men and women. He will put us through all sorts of things. But he never misses. He knows what he's doing. He will put you through hard things. He will stretch you beyond belief. He will make you give beyond whatever you thought you could do. And it will be eternally worth it. Father God, we love you. We open our eyes as we read this story of Paul at Lystra. Lord, we see, the, we see 
our, our beloved Paul being treated in ways that just are unspeakable. And there were seeds, there were disciples, undoubtedly more than Timothy, Lois and Eunice and who knows who. But there was a young boy who had become a great leader. Lord Jesus, would you open our eyes to see? Would you open our eyes to see? We would have the heart of a disciple. We would follow you to the end of the road. We would serve you with all that's in us. Give us, Lord, the heart of a disciple. We choose that desire. We choose to long for spiritual fruit. We choose to serve you with all that's in us. We have eyes that see. Blessed be the Lord that has called us. Just before I, I, I close, anyone want to just say today to the Lord, Lord, I, I, if I've been looking for an off-ramp, if I've grown tired, if I've decided I've given too much, that I've, been, I've, 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 I've jeopardized my comfort, my, my safety, my health, I've, in following Jesus, I've done too much. I repent of that attitude this day. And I say, I, I am a bondservant of Christ. And I will, I will serve you and I will follow you and I will live for you with all the passion and love in my heart. Jesus, above all, because I love you. I love you and I want to, to bear all the fruit I'm capable of bearing. I want to live right to the end to serve with every ounce I have. The, the Timothys and the Lucindisus and the Amandas will be found and grow and the seeds will bear generation after generation we're part of a great thing God give us the heart that's you if you're just saying yes Lord I hear that call would you say yes Lord hear us as we speak praise you Jesus now may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious unto you. May the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Through Jesus Christ, amen. Thanks for listening. If you like this podcast, please click the like button, subscribe, and share it with a friend. For more information, just head to our website, lifelessonspublishing.com. That's lifelessonspublishing.com. There you'll be able to order many of the books Pastor Steve has written.